0: Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, today we're going to be studying in the book of Ephesians chapter six. We're finishing out this chapter, our final chapter in the book of Ephesians. So let's get started. I'm reading from the New International Version, Ephesians chapter six, verses one through three. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So Paul is opening by giving us some parental advice here. Uh, Children should obey uh, their parents. Okay, So he's giving the children advice uh, that will put them in good stead. Of course, we as parents have to um, make sure that our children respect us and obey us. Uh, But Paul is is giving the children the incentive to obey their parents. He's giving them the clear-cut commandment to obey their parents just because it's the right thing to do. Children who rebel against their parents are doing great harm to uh, to themselves because that rebellion against parental authority carries uh, over into uh, rebellion against other authority. Uh, If they begin rebelling against the parental authority, it's going to carry over into uh, rebellion against governmental authority and civil authority, law enforcement, and all these kinds of things that won't abode well for them. It creates all kinds of problems in the years to come. So parents must demand obedience. Don't let your child disrespect you and disobey you, and and, uh, don't let them get in the habit of talking back and uh, it's your job to train and discipline your children to submit to your authority, uh, uh, to uh, authority in general. And, and you you train them to respect uh, outside authority by training them to respect uh, your authority at home. So while they're young, it's important to um, set boundaries and, and uh, give them a system of, of rewards and punishments. It's um, discipline. If you neglect this, it will result in harm to your child. Uh, the Bible actually says that he that um, the person who will not discipline his child uh, hates his child. And And it's it's not talking about the emotional feeling that you have. It's talking about the outcome that's going to happen to the child's life. So if you don't discipline them, you're setting them up for, for hardship and failure. Establish consequences for for disobedience. And and enforce those consequences. You're, you're not the child's best friend. Uh, you are the parent. And so God has given you greater wisdom, greater knowledge, and insight so that you can make right decisions for your children, so you can set boundaries. Yes, it is unpleasant and it's and it's grievous to apply discipline. But raising a child demands discipline, and, and discipline is unpleasant, both for the child and, and for the parent in the short run, uh, but, it, but it reaps great rewards down the road. So it is necessary for the good of the child and for society at large that uh, we discipline our children, especially while they're young, and then they'll grow up respecting you and respecting other people if you train them up in the way that they should go. Now, you're not your child's friend. Again, you are his or her parent. So you have that wisdom and that knowledge and that insight. And and don't let them make decisions that they're not capable of making early on. Uh, Don't give them options that they shouldn't have. You make the choice. You're the ones uh, that God has given oversight over your children. So you protect them by making uh, certain choices for them. You must make the choices for them, many of those choices. You can, give, you can allow them to make some minor choices when they're young, but they don't know enough. Uh, and, and especially in their teenage years, they're, they, they're uh, vulnerable. And uh, they will look at you as the enemy when you set those boundaries, because when they get to be teenagers, they think that they know more than they do know. So those are the turbulent years, those adolescent years, those teenage years they don't know enough to make certain choices. So you have to be wise enough to make them for them and be firm enough to stand by your decisions. Paul goes on to say, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So there are two reasons for a child to honor father and mother. Number one, uh, honor, honor them so that things will go well with you. To dishonor parents is sowing the seeds of trouble in your own life. All kinds of bad things happen uh, to people who dishonor their parents, and, and and you won't even know why these things are happening to you. It's because you dishonored your father and your mother. And uh, secondly, you should honor them because it's the commandment. Uh, uh, it is the first commandment, actually, that has a promise attached to it. Uh, the promise is that if you honor your father and your mother, things will go well with you. And you will. the second promise is that you will live long upon the earth. You'll have a long life. So in addition to creating all kinds of troubles in your life, dishonoring your parents can shorten your life. Well, that's a sobering thought. Uh, honor means to... Greatly respect and highly esteem them. Uh, but the word honor also means to provide for them w- when they are old and sick and uh, to give them what they need to survive. In many cultures, parents uh, are brought into the home of their adult children when they get older and when they, when they um, are incapable of taking care of themselves. Many countries don't have nursing homes, and they don't have social security, uh, the, the social security net, and uh, they, they don't have welfare. So um, it falls upon the children to repay their parents uh, for taking care of them. When the parents get old, old, and and incapable of of caring for themselves, it's the right thing for the child to take that uh, the, the uh, take that parent, the adult child, to take that parent into. Their home to care for them um, and to do what is necessary for their survival. Now, in America, in this country, it's a, it's a very wealthy country, and and we have social safe safety nets in place, but uh, it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't excuse us from not caring for our children. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for voiding God's commandment to honor uh, father and mother. Uh, And provide for their needs. And and, uh, the Pharisees replaced that commandment to honor father and mother, that is to care for your father and mother and to to give them what they need. Um, The Pharisees replaced that uh, with their own tradition. Jesus said this in in Mark chapter 7. He said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. That's Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13 in the New Living Translation. So it is right to respect our parents, and it is right to provide for them when they are old and need help to care for themselves. Uh, Again, in America, there are systems to help with uh, uh, the care of the elderly, but This does not excuse us from helping with the care and provisions of our parents. Now I'm reading verse four. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So fathers should not irritate or provoke to anger or antagonize their children. Um, Fathers should be reasonable with the demands that they make. Don't be a tyrant. Uh, I know of a particular uh, father who never I never heard him say a kind word to his children. He only com- uh, communicated to them in harsh and abrasive tones that is wrong. that is frustrating your children that um, that is provoking your children to anger that is exasperating them. Uh, fathers when you have to punish, uh, your child, do it, but not with a grudge. Uh, but do it as a responsibility. When the discipline is over, don't keep harping on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let it go and resume a kind and friendly and loving demeanor. Let your normal demeanor be one that is uh, amenable, that is, that is kind and, and friendly when the child is not doing anything that merits discipline, then, uh, uh, be cheerful and joyful and kind to, to your children. Only when they cross the line, when they get into rebellion and they do things, uh, get into disobedience, do you, uh, get firm with them. And, uh, and, and perhaps you might change your tone, but don't walk around fussing and angry all the time. Um, creating a storm in your home all the time. Let your normal demeanor be an agreeable one. Children are learning and and they will do a lot of things that you don't like. They're going to make mistakes. You don't punish your children when they have accidents, if they knock over, spill the milk because they're awkward, if they they break something unintentionally. um, um, I don't care how valuable it is. It's not a time to discipline your child for something that they did not intentionally do. Um, choose your battles and don't make life miserable for your child and for everyone else. Now, there are times that you have to be stern, but not all day, every day. Compliment your children when they when they get it right. Praise them often. Find things that you can praise them for. Catch them doing something good that you can praise them for and affirm them and show them love and and uh, don't um, degenerate into this harsh, abrasive tone uh, all the time. Express love and appreciation for them just because they are your children. Instead of provoking them, the Bible says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Teach them about the right ways of the Lord. Pray with them. Read the scriptures with them. Let them see you praying. Uh, Let them see you being kind to their mother and and, uh, um, just set the kind of tone that you want for your child to follow. Explain things to them. Answer their many questions. Children are filled with questions, especially when they're young. Um, That's God's doing. God made them inquisitive because that's how they gather knowledge. They're curious about everything because they don't know much and they have a lot to learn, so they're hungry for knowledge. So they will ask you a thousand questions. Try to answer them all patiently. Tell them that they were created to be something great and that you are there to help them to develop that greatness. Teach them and coach them and train them in in how to grow into the man or woman of God that they were created to be, amen? All right, now I'm reading verses five through nine. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, this commandment for slaves to obey their masters is uh, in several of of Paul's letters here. And um, I always address it with the same way. Slavery was a way of life In the Roman Empire, but it was never God's will to enslave innocent people. In the ancient world, there were a number of ways a person could become a slave. Number one, um, they were the survivors of a lost war, and they became the slaves of the victors. Those who won uh, would enslave the ones who lost. That's one way people became slaves. Uh, Secondly, people could people who could not uh, pay their debts, they made debts, they couldn't pay them. Well, they had debtors' prisons uh, uh, or in ancient times, you became the slave of the person that you owed until you worked that debt off. okay So that's another way that people became slaves. Uh, and then thirdly, sometimes people who were destitute and in danger of starvation would uh, enslave themselves. they would they would give themselves over, to someone who had means and became their slaves just for the sake of survival, uh, and then lastly, the fourth way that people became slaves was were, uh, uh, were, were they were kidnapped. They were uh, kidnapped from their homes, from their families. They were shackled and brutalized and uh, and and battered into submission the Europeans and the the Americans kidnapped Africans and made them slaves. Uh, Some Americans tried to make slaves of the Native Americans, but they didn't make good slaves. Um, They died of diseases and and they uh, they just, they knew too much about their own country. They could could escape, so they were able to resist. Um, But I don't believe that These Americans and Arabs and European slave owners and slave traders were Christians. In fact, abolitionists used the Bible to condemn slavery and slave holders. In Exodus chapter 21 and 16, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay. That's in Exodus 21, 16 and the um, uh, uh, in Exodus 21, 6, uh, twenty-one sixteen. Okay. Um, so the point that I'm making is that I don't believe that uh, a person who is a slave owner, after the fashion of uh, American, Arab, and European slave owners, those who stole people and sold them, and those who purchased them, uh, I don't believe that a person can engage in that kind of behavior and call themselves a Christian. That's exactly what the Europeans and Arabs and Americans did to the Africans. They stole them and they sold them. Now, this passage says that both the kidnapper and the purchaser should be put to death. You can't kidnap a person, make him your slave, oppress him, take his wages, sell his family and all he has, while at the same time calling yourself a Christian. I just don't buy that. You can't buy a helpless, kidnapped victim. Force them to be your slave. Make him or her work for nothing. Keep them in bondage, all while calling yourself a Christian. Now, a true Christian would try to help the victims of slavery, not further victimize them. Anyone who would argue that the American and European slaveholders were Christians should think about this. If someone kidnapped your wife, your son, or your daughter, or your grandchild, or your mother, or your father, or any of your loved ones, and made them slaves, would you call the slaver a Christian? I don't think so. No one who participated in kidnapping people and buying and selling or possessing them could honestly call themselves true Christians. The Bible describes followers of Christ as people who are merciful, empathetic, and sympathetic. The teachings of Christ nullifies and abolishes slavery and discrimination among true Christians. And it raises the slave to the level of an employer or of an employee and a family member because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So now, how should we apply Paul's word about slaves and slave masters today? Well, we should apply it as employer and employees. As Christians, we should be good, honest employees, especially if our employer is a Christian. We should consider an employer worthy of full respect so that God's name and the apostles' teaching would not be slandered. Christian employers should uh, be served better. We should serve them better if they're Christian because they're our fellow believers. They're our brothers and sisters and they're devoted to the welfare of their employees or they should be. Christian employers should be fair and just and look out for the welfare of their employees. They should treat their Christian employees like employed family members. Everything that we do, as employers and employees, should be done in consideration to our submission and obedience to Christ. Amen. Okay. Now I'm reading verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul is saying here, equip yourself to be able to stand against the schemes and the wiles that the devil will surely bring against you. You uh, equip yourself by strengthening yourself and fully arming yourself and preparing for his attack before it happens. Don't wait until the devil assaults you. Uh, We should have a normal habit of doing those things that are strengthening to us, that arm us. Our real fight, Paul said, our real fight is not against flesh and blood human beings, but against demon spirits. We cannot see them, but they are there. They're invisible. They work through people and nature, to create trouble and to bring uh, temptation into our lives, trying to turn us away from Christ. Demons try to seduce us and influence us and move other people against us. The story of Job reveals how Satan and demons worked. It's sort of an expose uh, of, of Satan's modus operandi, his way of operating. Satan set out to make Job turn against God. He said, let me have my way with him and and I'll make him curse you to your face. That's what he told God. First off, Satan and his demons put it into the mind of robbers to steal all of Job's livestock and to kill all of his servants except one that could take the bad news back to Job. All of those servants that were attending the livestock were killed but one messenger. Secondly, Satan caused fire to fall from heaven, perhaps lightning, uh, perhaps fire and burn up all of Job's sheep and the servants who were attending them except one to take back the bad news. Then another band of robbers stole all his uh, camels and, and killed his servants that were attending to them except one to bring the bad news back to Job. Then Satan sent a strong wind and blew down the house and killed all of Job's children. Now, then after that, Satan struck Job's body with sickness, with boils and sickness from head to toe. And then finally, Satan put the very words in Job's mouth to uh, persuade him or entice him to do exactly what he wanted him to do. Uh, he told, he put in uh, Job's wife, Job's wife's heart and mind, the words curse God and die. In fact, Job 2 and 9, it says his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Okay, so you see, Satan puts it in the minds of people and he uses people, weak people or people who are vented toward evil to do his will. The, uh Paul t- tells us that we should arm ourselves, we should be strong, and put on the whole armor of God that we'll be able to stand in that evil day. The evil day is when trouble comes at you from all directions within a short period of time, in a short season. There's a saying, when it rains, it pours. So all of these uh, seemingly unrelated things that happen to you at one time, uh, they're not unrelated. They are orchestrated by Satan and his demon powers. You can't see them. They move upon people to do things to you. They move upon the very nature and they create situations and circumstances of trouble. Notice that in Job's case, most of the trouble was delivered into his life by people, but the people were only puppets in the hands of demons. That's why Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world that that is demons working through people and through nature to create trouble and difficulty to discourage the purpose their objective their goal is to discourage us and make us turn against god we can see that clearly in job's life it's important to note and remember this satan usually uses people to do evil who are evil in the first place. He uses people who are already evil or people who are weak. It is difficult for Satan to get a righteous person to do wicked and violent things. It is easier to get a robber to commit robbery or a murderer to commit murder. Uh, it's easier to, to get persuade them and move them to do what they naturally do that it is for him to persuade a righteous person to do these things. Righteous people resist evil. So he will use uh, the naturally evil or he will use the weak. Um, And uh, he has a real hard time getting um, a person who is not a murderer to commit murder. or A person who doesn't have murder in their hearts already or in their minds. Other examples of how Satan works through people to do wicked and violent things is seen in, in many of the mass killings and uh and the mass murders and suicides that we see happening today. he uses people who are, who have this kind of a murderous spirit and may not be known to the people around them, but they have this thing in them uh, this this vent toward doing evil this propensity to do evil uh, and so he puts it in their mind to go and shoot up a school, or shoot up a hospital, or or, or find innocent people. He just puts the thought in their minds and the motivation, and he moves them to doing what's evil. Satanic spirits spark violence and even move people to start wars. But the person he uses has violence and wickedness in his or her heart to begin with. If you want to execute someone, you don't throw them into a a herd of sheep, they won't do anything, but you throw them into a den of lions and then they'll be torn to pieces. So that's how Satan works. He uses people who are bent toward evil or people who are weak to do his bidding. So that's why Paul tells us not to be weak, to be strong. We're more vulnerable to Satan's influence. Um, naturally, if, if we're Christians, uh, we're not under his domination but we can be under his influence. He can do us to do little wicked things. He can get us to gossip or he can get us to be jealous or he can get us to undermine each other and do little stuff like that. He'll have a hard time getting you to to murder someone or to do some of the big, uh the terrible, heinous uh, uh crimes or sins, but he'll entice you to do little stuff if you weep. Now, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, put on the full armor of God Now, understanding that these seasons of satanic attack comes into all of our lives, Paul warns us to strengthen ourselves and fully arm ourselves so that we can withstand these stormy seasons. They come and they go like storms. Using the illustration of a soldier who is fully armed and ready to do battle, Paul gives us a list of the articles of armor that we need to put on. Now, we can only expect to stand if we are strong and fully armed. If we, um, if, if, if we do everything necessary, necessary to stand, we will be able to stand. Now, the first article of armor that Paul mentioned is the belt of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his teachings is the belt of truth. It is the foundation from, from, for, uh, for all of the other armor. It is what all the other armor rests on and hangs on. Our faith begins by hearing the truth. And as we continue to hold to the truth and learn more truth, we become freer and freer because we become stronger and stronger. Peter asked the word, I believe in 2 Peter chapter 1, do you want more and more of God's kindness and peace? then learn to know him better and better. Now, the Bible says this in John 8, 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, "Um, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or the King James says, make you free. Uh, Whatever the case, you will be free. If you hold to the truth and do the truth, live by the truth, um, practice living by the truth, you will you become freer and freer. Jesus prayed to the Father and said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's John seventeen seventeen. So the word of God, uh, particularly, specifically, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is truth. It is the truth that sets us free. And as we go on in the words, the teachings of Christ and the apostles and and studying the scriptures, we become freer and freer. It is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God that frees us and keeps us free. We have to gird ourselves with this truth like a belt. And we have to determine to live by this truth as a habit of our lives before the trouble comes. Don't wait until the trouble starts. Prepare yourself for war in a time of peace. We must be honest and sincere in our faith and the way we live. We have to hold firmly to the truth and don't let it go. We have to refresh ourselves regularly with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Arm yourself with the truth. We have to keep talking in truth. Uh, keep living by the truth. Keep re- renewing your mind with the truth. Read and meditate on the truth. Sing about the truth. Sit under those who preach and teach the truth. Just continually take you in truth. Now, the second article of armor, armor that Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. When we enter into Christ, we put on his righteousness we are made the righteousness of Christ, Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, we are made the righteousness of, uh, of God in Christ, so Jesus commands us to seek the kingdom of God above all else, and, and, and its righteousness, and live righteously, and, and, we will, and he will give us everything else that we need, that's in Matthew 6, 33, so determined to live a life of righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. God works in us, giving us the desire to obey him and giving us the ability to obey him. That's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse twelve, verses 12 and 13. So God is working in us and we work with God. He gives us the desire to do what is right and he gives us the ability to do what is right and so we should take that, as that desire and that ability and do what is right. We're called to be diligent in living a life of righteousness that reflects our position and status in Christ. Right in the middle of Job's suffering, when the devil was bringing his worst against Job and Job was experiencing the worst trouble in his life, these are the words that he said in Job 27 my righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. That's Job 27 and 6 in the King James Version. So Job was determined to hold on to his righteousness, and that's what we have to hold on to. Before the trouble comes and when the trouble comes and after the trouble comes, we should be people of righteousness. No matter what we go through, We should follow Job's example and hold on to our righteousness and do the right thing. The Apostle John said this, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. That's 1 John 3 and 7 in the New Living Translation. Now, the third article of armor that Paul mentions is the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He said, having your, in the King James, having your feet shod in the gospel of peace, uh, putting on the, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, we should stand on and stand in this gospel of peace. The gospel message um, is, is, is that the message of the gospel, I want to make this clear, is that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have peace with God, and we have eternal life. That's the essence of the gospel message. God offers this peace through faith in Christ. We have to walk in this truth wherever we go, like shoes. Walk in this truth that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we now have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we prepare ourselves with this truth in our minds and our hearts. We have to be willing to share this gospel of peace with anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. Uh, so we live and we walk in this gospel of peace. Now the fourth article of armor is the shield of faith that extinguishes all the devil's flaming arrows. Faith, like all the other articles of armor hangs on truth. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. That's Romans ten seventeen. So our faith is activated first through the preaching of the gospel, uh, and then it feeds and it grows on the word of God. Our faith is activated when we hear the gospel message, and then we believe it. That's our faith being born. Our faith in Christ and his word drowns out the fiery arrows of the devil. In other words, the weapons of Satan won't work against us if we hold on to our faith, if we stand in faith, we're able to withstand the assaults of the devil, okay? Now, some examples of Satan's arrows are discouraging circumstances, disappointment, trouble, betrayal by friends and loved ones, sickness, Some of these things may hurt, but they do not destroy us if we're strong and if we're well-armed. They won't cause us to to fall uh, uh, or to turn against God if we hold on to our faith. Don't let your faith go. Don't let go of your faith. Feed it every day with the word of God and with prayer and with regular church attendance. Feed your faith and And uh, someone said, feed your faith and starve your doubts to death. Now the fifth article of armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is not what you have on your head, but what you have in your head and in your heart. The hope uh, or the expectation of salvation is the helmet of salvation, the hope or the expectation, not an empty wish, but an expectancy. Uh, salvation includes a number of good things. Some are happening to us now and some are promised to us in the future. The things that happen in our, our lives in, uh, right now includes the forgiveness of sins, freedom from slavery to sin, a new and abundant life, joy and peace, fellowship with God, Inclusion into the into the body of Christ. These are things that we're already experiencing and we're already enjoying. The things that we can expect includes a new glorified body, sinless and immortal. Okay? A sinless, immortal, glorified body that is vented to do right instead of vented to do wrong. New heavens and a new earth are part of that salvation package where there is no sin. Well, there's no pain, there's no disappointment. Eternal life uh, in, in this perfect paradise is part of that package. And reunion with our believing loved ones who have died and gone on, and much more is included in that uh, future package of salvation, those promises that God has given us. So the helmet of salvation is the knowledge of what God is doing now and the expectation of what God is going to do, what is to come, knowledge of the promises of God. Because we believe the gospel, we keep our mind and our eyes focused on the prize. The best is yet to come. And so we focus on this instead of our momentary troubles that come our way. That's what's in our minds and in our hearts. That's what keeps us motivated That's what keeps us going forward. We encourage ourselves by pulling out the promises of God, by looking at what is ahead of us, and we're able to press on. We're able to fight off discouragement. That's the helmet of salvation in our head and in our hearts. We fully expect the redemption of our bodies. We expect that. It's not an empty hope. It's an expectation. We fully expect eternal life. We fully expect new heavens and a new earth. We fully expect to rule and reign with Christ on this this new earth. We we wear this hope, this expectation like a helmet, and we stay focused on the coming of Christ and the transformation and the restoration of all things. This protects our minds from discouragement and despair. That's the helmet of salvation. We resolve uh, or we receive tremendous comfort by focusing on these amazing promises of God, okay? Then the sixth article of armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is both offensive and defensive. We can use it to resist Satan's temptations and devices, and we can use it to advance into Satan's territory and set his captives free, make new converts for Christ. Uh, And to strengthen them in the faith. Jesus set the example of how we are to use the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to counter the enemy's assaults. When he was being tempted by Satan, with each temptation, Jesus countered with a passage of Scripture. That's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, if you want to read that. Jesus countered each temptation with a passage of Scripture. So, We should use the word of God to resist Satan's temptations. We should memorize scripture to use to speak back against uh, the demon forces that we know are, are behind our circumstances, behind the assaults of people who come against us, and behind all the troubles in our lives. We need to memorize scripture and have them ready on our tongue so when the trouble comes, we can speak to those things like Jesus did. The word of God also strengthens us and helps us to avoid falling into sin. David said these words, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's Psalm 119.11 in the King James Version. And the word of God also lights the way before us and shows us the right path to walk. David also said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's Psalms 119 and 105. Now I'm reading verses 18 through 20. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So Paul said, we must pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And Paul even said, pray for me so that I can do, have the courage to do what I want to do. And we'll touch on that in a little bit. Praying in the Spirit is praying in the power and the will of the Holy Spirit and in accordance to the Spirit's leading and direction. That's praying in the Spirit. You're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're you're praying according to the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are clearly informed on most of what we are to pray for. Specifically in this passage of Scripture, Paul tells us what to pray for that if we read the scriptures, we will know what to pray for and what we should not pray for. Um, By the word of God, and particularly here, we are given information on what to pray for. So we have to educate ourselves through the word of God, so we won't be praying for things that are out of the will of God. The Bible also indicates that praying in the spirit is praying in tongues, okay? Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I'm saying. Well then, what shall I do? I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. That's 1 Corinthians 14 and 14 through 15, okay? So um, praying in the Spirit includes praying in tongues, praying in tongues unknown languages. That is something that the unction of the Holy Spirit gives us. Since Paul said we should pray with all kinds of prayer in this passage, praying in tongues is included along with praying with the understanding and in the power and will of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 18 says, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Christians are commanded to be alert and watchful. And we are to pray for our brothers and sisters worldwide, not just those who are in your denomination uh, or, in, in, or in your local church, or if you're not part of a denomination in your affiliation or your local church. We are all brothers and sisters regardless to the denominational affiliation. We have brothers and sisters in every race all over the world and virtually uh, every denomination or non-denomination. So we have to uh, think broader um, than we have uh, been thinking in the past. Paul said, pray for the saints everywhere, pray for Christians everywhere. So we wanna pray for people, Christians in, in China, those who are in Saudi Arabia, those who are in Africa, those who are in Israel, those who are in America, those who are in Australia, all over the world, we need to pray for them. But Paul said we ought to to watch, that is, watch out for and avoid things that may cause us to sin or move us away from God. So we are to watch and pray. Paul said, be alert or be watchful. Now, ancient civilizations lived in walled cities. That was their protection. They lived in cities that had great walls around them and there were watchmen who were stationed high on the wall at different places along the wall. They could see anyone approaching from a distance and from any direction because they were stationed at different places along the wall. Their job was to sound the alarm if an enemy soldier uh, or if any enemy soldiers were approaching. They were to sound the alarm so that everybody could could arm themselves and get to the wall and, and fight off the enemy. The survival of an entire city depended on early warning from the watchman on the wall, okay? And because a watchman's job was so critical to everyone's survival, if he fell asleep on the job, he was subject to execution. Now, this is the idea that Paul is conveying to us. Um, this this is the importance that he is emphasizing here, that Christians stay alert. Christians have to stay watchful and ready to vigorously resist any any threat um, uh, uh, to our stand in Christ. Any threat that would come to try to undermine our faith, try to get us away from Christ, try to discourage us, try to get us to turn away from Christ, try to get us to sin. Okay, We have to be watchful for those things. Watching and prayer provides a hedge against falling into temptation and sin. That's why Jesus said these words, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's Matthew 26:41. So our human spirit is willing to do what God wants us to do. Our human spirit is our born again spirit, but our flesh is weak towards sin and disobedience. Okay, so our flesh is easy to entice. Our bodies, as long as we're in these bodies, have a propensity to do wrong. They want to do what's wrong. But our spirit within us, with the help of the Holy Spirit who is also in us, resists the desires of our flesh. So Satan will entice our flesh to sin. There is strength and protection in watching and praying. So um, a Christian who won't pray is a weak Christian, he is a, a Christian that the devil is going to use, okay, to do uh, uh, ungodly things, and, and it can also, uh, Satan can ruin their own lives. Now, he may not be able to get them to go and do some heinous crime, but he can get them to do things that will hurt other people around them and that will hurt them, uh, hurt themselves. There is just no way around it. If you want to be strong and, and and stand, Christians have to be regular in prayer and watching. Pray every day, pray throughout the day and in all circumstances the Bible says. So Paul went on to say, "Pray for me that whenever I speak word that whenever I speak words may be given to me." So it's important to ask God to guide us in our speech and not just in our speech but but in our activities, but especially if we have the job of preaching or teaching the word of God, we need to ask God to guide us, to to, uh, prompt us to say all that's in his heart to say and to restrain us from saying more. Uh, But it is a good habit to ask God for wisdom of words in everyday life as well. Paul said, pray for me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. God gives courage and boldness to those he has chosen to do his work. And God responds to prayers for courage and boldness. So when we, when we are feeling afraid and our fear is getting in the way of doing what God says to do, we need to pray for courage and boldness like Paul told us to pray for him. The great apostle Paul who faced so much and endured so much, he had, he had fear that he had to deal with. And courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is overriding your fear to do what you know God wants you to do, or to do what you know is right. Um, soldiers, when they go into battle, may be scared to death, but they override those fears and they do what, uh, what they have to do. In the book of Acts, Peter and company prayed, and now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Okay, that's Acts chapter 4, verse 29. God filled them with the Holy Spirit and gave them boldness, and they continued to preach the word of God and had signs following them. So, Paul instructed Christians to put on the whole armor of God and to pray. Now, it's important to note that it is not enough to partially arm ourselves if we put on part of the armor we will be partially successful, but partial success is failure. Paul said in verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. After you have done everything to stand, then stand, okay? So he says, after you put on the full armor of God, you'll be able to, to stand your ground. That is after you have done everything to stand. So we have to do everything. If we want to be completely successful, we have to do everything that the Bible tells us to do to arm ourselves and to be strong. And that is put on the whole armor of God, of course, and uh, strengthen ourselves through prayer, through the word of God, through fellowship and with the people of God. We have to be willing to do everything Paul instructs us to do If we want to be able to stand when the season of satanic attack comes against us. Now I'm reading verses 21 and 22. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Tychicus was one of Paul's traveling companions who was sent by Paul, to give a full report on on Paul's ministry and well-being. He was also probably instructed to gather information from the Ephesians uh, um, about their progress so he could report back to Paul. Now I'm reading verses 23 and 24, and we'll finish this chapter. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Well, that brings us to the close of Ephesians chapter 6 and the end of the book of Ephesians. I hope you were blessed by our study through this great book today. It's been a pleasure to study the the, uh, book of Ephesians with you, and I look forward to our next study. Until then, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune in to our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.